Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we're going to jump down to verse 22, pick up a little more about this temple and this heavenly city. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They, meaning the kings, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's good to be with you all again. My name is Kevin Twed. I'm the RUF campus minister at Belmont University. been doing that for 24 years. But around here, my claim to fame is I married Wendy Morgan. And so Bob and Elizabeth are my in-laws. And um, so it is always a joy to come home, so to speak, uh, here to Zion. So Paul told me that we've been in a series here on the mission of God. And I want to develop that idea along the lines of the picture we see here in Revelation 21. And it's actually a rather surprising picture. It shouldn't be a surprising picture if we knew better in the Christian church the storyline of the Bible, but for many Christians and for those who maybe are trying to figure out what Christianity is like, and if you're here today, we're glad you're here. We hope that we will have the Bible, and particularly this passage, correct some of the misunderstandings that may be surprising to us about this picture we see in Revelation 21. I guess the first thing I would say as we look at this picture, part of what makes it surprising is this. There's a city in this picture, not just clouds. So many people, I think, have this idea that Christians, when they die, will go off and spend like this disembodied eternity floating on clouds. As a matter of fact, I was really hoping when I got here today that we wouldn't sing any of the wretched hymns and songs that celebrate that kind of idea, because they're everywhere in the Christian church, in the Christian tradition. Songs that, that speak about our future as, as being non-bodily, as just being our spirits 
carried up somewhere. Even good old Charles Wesley, and I love Charles Wesley. I actually teach hymnology at Belmont University, and I'm teaching it even this semester. Charles Wesley, one of our greatest hymn writers, wrote 6,000 hymns, and yet I saw even in the last verse of the hymn we sang, rejoice in glorious hope, and I thought, great, what's the glorious hope? Well, it's actually surprising in two, in two ways, one good and one bad. He says, rejoice in glorious hope, our Lord the judge shall come. Now, I just got to tell you, most modern-day Christians, particularly in the West, particularly in America, don't like the idea of God being a judge, and they particularly don't think it's something to hope for. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks about God the judge in very positive terms. And you would understand that, we would understand that if we were not, well, we would understand it better if we were more like the people the Bible was written to, oppressed, suffering. Oppressed and suffering people long for God, the judge, to come and make all things right. Modern people look at it and they're like, whoa, 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 I don't know if I can get on board with this idea of God as a judge. So I love that Charles Wesley says, rejoice in hope that God, the judge, will come and make all things right. But then, not so much the next line. And take his servants up to their, and this is the problem, eternal home. As if being taken up somewhere is our ultimate eternal destiny when Revelation 21 clearly says that the new heavens and the new earth come down. And there's many, many other songs that are worse and that give us this kind of false view of what our eternal home will look like. And here's why it matters. Because what we long for, what we hope for, shapes our prayers and our hopes and our dreams and even the things that we set before us to do today. It's important that we have an accurate picture of what God has promised to bring. And when we look at this picture, that's the first surprise. There's a city that's coming down. But the second aspect of this picture in Revelation that should probably surprise us is that there's stuff in the heavenly city. Stuff in the heavenly city. In other words, again, it's not a, a place where souls contemplate the divine forever in bodiless bliss. The kings, it says here, bring their splendor or their glory or their riches into the city. They bring stuff, good stuff, the richest productions of humanity into this city. Now, Revelation, the picture that John sees here is actually de de described as well by Isaiah. Isaiah saw the same city that John sees, and he describes it in Isaiah 60. There's actually even more details in Isaiah 60, and it includes more details particularly about the stuff. The vision here is of a city with stuff in it, stuff that comes from the kings of the earth, bringing the glory of the nations into the city. Now, this is often surprising to people. Because we think that God is just about souls and redeeming souls and rescuing souls and taking them off somewhere. It shouldn't surprise us, this vision in Revelation 21, though, because God created a physical world. And not just a raw creation, but he put Adam and Eve in a garden. What that means is a cultivated part of the creation. And he invited his people to work the garden 
and take it beyond the dimensions of the garden. In other words, to work and bring this cultivation, which is where we get the word culture, bring it to fruition. In other words, to bring out all the God-glorifying potential that he built into his creation. And he built a lot of God-glorifying potential into his creation. Now, of course, mankind rebelled against this vision, rejected the good work that God gave us to do. But here's the thing. As Psalm 19 tells us, all of creation declares his glory. The problem is, in our sin, we try to make his creation declare our glory and serve our comfort. But here's the thing. God's creation is speaking. Actually, that that Hebrew word there in Psalm 19 is more like the creation is preaching at us. The creation is speaking, declaring God's glory day after day. They pour forth speech. Do you think of the creation as speaking? It's speaking, actually. And that means everything that we do, everything that we use the creation to fashion, you're interacting Even people that don't confess faith in Jesus are interacting with the stuff that God has stamped with meaning, the stuff that is speaking and declaring declaring his glory. This is why it's worth paying attention to culture. Because whether people understand Jesus or not, they're interacting with God speaking. All people, whether they realize it or not, are in a dialogue with God as they interact with the world he's made. And the world he made is not just this passive example you can turn to to say, look, we must have a God because the creation evidence is that this. No, it's not passive. It's actually preaching at us. It's pressing on us. And we're interacting with it. Either amplifying what it's saying. Yes, God gave sex and work, and good food to declare his glory and to bring about um, more and more praise to his name. You can amplify what the creation is saying, or you can try and make it say something else. For instance, when you think about work, God created work as a way to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is cursed and made more frustrating after the fall, but it wasn't a result of the fall. Now, the problem is, while God created work to say, I am good, glorify me and enjoy me forever as you work to cultivate the creation, we try to make work say something else, don't we? Often we try to make work to say, this is why I matter. Bart Simpson from The Simpsons, maybe you've seen the show. I I love this uh, snarky, I guess quote from that show. One time he was asked to say grace before a meal. And he says this, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. And sometimes that's what we think of work. Hey, this is how I provide for myself. And that's not what God created work for. We try to say other things than what God created the stuff to say. The second thing about this picture, it's not just that there's a city, it's not just that the city is filled with stuff, but notice it's the kings of all the earth who bring their stuff into the city. In other words, what we have here is a multicultural 
vision. Now, if you want to explore some of the ideas I'm talking about this morning, I recommend a particular book by a guy named Richard Mao, M-O-U-W. He's a good guy, and he uh, wrote a book called When the Kings Come Marching In. It's a small little book, but it might really open your eyes to some new ways to think about these things. But he says this. He goes, diverse cultural riches will be brought into the heavenly city. That which has been parceled out among various cultures in human history must now be collected and gathered together for the glory of the Creator. Now, when it says here that the kings are going to bring their glory into the city, that's important because kings in the ancient world were more than just political rulers. They also set the cultural tone. And so Mao goes on, he says, to assemble kings together then was in an important sense to assemble their national cultures together. This is why Isaiah in Isaiah 60 and John here in Revelation 21 link the entrance of the kings into the city with the gathering in of the wealth of the nations. Again, this shouldn't be surprising, this multicultural vision, because it's not a left turn in the storyline of the Bible. God has always cared about all the nations of the earth and has intended for the people of God to be a people of every race, tongue, and tribe. John actually bases what he's saying here Again, from the picture in Isaiah 60. This isn't even just a New Testament idea. It's everywhere in the Bible. Numerous places anticipate this multicultural vision that we see in Revelation 21. We saw it in in, uh, Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is fascinating where it speaks about the people that it will be said were born in Zion. And if you know the history of the Bible, a lot of those people groups that are mentioned there in Psalm 87 are people that were the enemies of God. The enemies of God. It's going to be said of them that they were born in Zion, that they're part of us. God has always had a vision of the whole earth, every race, tribe, tongue, and nation being part of the kingdom of God. It's not a left turn in the storyline of the Bible. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, the people don't all speak the same language. As if God's goal was to merge all the cultures of the world into one. Instead, they maintain their cultural distinctives while declaring the gospel in their own languages. Why? Well, I think it's this. No culture can fully capture what it means to declare God's goodness. You see, God has been the God of the whole earth from the beginning, but God's people have often struggled with that. The Israelites never lived as a blessing to the nations, and the Judaizers in the New Testament, leaving aside whether they're Christians or not, they taught the Galatians that they needed to adopt Jewish culture to be truly pleasing to God. And a lot of true Christians even got confused about that point. Even the Apostle Peter gets confused about that point at one point. The irony, of course, to all of this is that Christianity, rightly understood, is the most flexible religion in the world, culturally speaking. But again, it hasn't always been seen that way by God's people. I was thinking of that great hymn by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Glorious things of thee are spoken. It's based on Psalm 87. And even though this man fought against the slave trade, at least when he finally connected the dots, took him a little while, When he finally connected the dots, he began this crusade with William Wilberforce to to destroy the African slave trade. And yet, his version of Psalm 87, glorious things are spoken, says nothing about the multicultural vision that's right at the center of the psalm. 
So it's often been missed, but it's always been God's intention. Too often Christians have equated Christianity with one culture. They have. And they fail to encourage people to explore how the gospel should become incarnate in their own culture in spite of the book of Galatians, which really one of the heart messages of Galatians, there's no one pure cultural expression of the gospel. Acts 15, the great Jerusalem council, they wrestled with this. Do you have to adopt Jewish culture to be truly pleasing to God? And the Jerusalem council said no. And yet Christians have often seem to to not live up to that glorious vision. True Christianity is the most multicultural religion in the world. Think about it. Over the last 2,000 years, the epicenter of Christianity has moved from Israel to the rest of the Middle East, to Africa, to Europe, to America. And now the epicenter of Christianity is no longer the West. It's in the Southern Hemisphere and Asia. For instance, there are more Presbyterians in Ghana than in America and Scotland combined. But we don't think of it that way, do we? I, I love this, this uh, guy who passed away actually just last year, Laman Sani, African Christian scholar who at one time was the, the head of Islamic studies at Oxford University. He writes in a book, Whose Religion is Christianity? Christianity Beyond the West, this. Secularism, with its anti-supernaturalism and individualism, is much more destructive of local cultures and Africanness than Christianity is. When Africans become Christians, their Africanness is converted, completed, and resolved, not replaced with Europeanness or something else. Through Christianity, Africans get distance enough to critique their traditions yet still inhabit them. The same should actually be true of us, Americans, or whatever you are here today. Christianity needs to be incarnated in various different cultures, and we need to see that multicultural vision even here. It's very different than Islam and Hinduism, by the way. And this multicultural vision means we can and should extol the goodness of creation and the good things about the products of human culture, even culture produced by people who don't worship Jesus. That's right. Listen, on this point, Bach did not exhaust all the God-glorifying potential that God has made with regard to music. Right? He did some amazing things, but there's a lot more God-glorifying potential in music than any one culture can bring out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, does that thrill you, or does it make you mad? (laughs) That's the question. Because we have to live in this tension, you see. Nothing is perfect. Everything that humans create has something in it to commend, and it's hard work to do so sometimes. But again, every aspect of culture is in dialogue with God. Now, do our tastes reflect this multicultural vision? Does our worship imply that we believe God requires us to adopt one cultural expression of the gospel. I love this line from Marva Dawn, a great lady who's helped me a lot in thinking about worship. She said this one time, if our churches truly reflected the diversity that they should, then everybody should come to church expecting to sing songs they don't like. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? That's a spiritual maturity issue. Now, I think it's important for the church to cast that vision. 
It's part of why John speaks about this vision in Revelation 21, that we would catch this vision that's bigger than just our particular cultural taste or cultural kind of home place. But you might be asking, how can all this stuff made by sinful people be brought into the heavenly city? And that gets us to the next surprising thing. Because our text says, no impure thing will be in the city. So how can you have the kings of all the earth bringing their glory into the city, and yet no impure thing will be in the city? How do you put those together? I really think the only explanation for this is that God has not given up on his creation and had to settle for just pure human souls. God's redemptive and transforming work will not be limited to saving human souls, but must extend even to the things they have made if this vision in Revelation 21 is to become reality. And you see, here's what we need to see. Our God is a God of dogged perseverance. Humans have sought to fill the creation with the idolatrous productions of their culture in opposition to God. But still, God says, one day... I'm going to fill my city with the culture of human beings. Anthony Hokema, great um, scholar, theologian, now with the Lord, says this, There is startling symbolism in God's act of putting the glories of pagan culture in his heavenly city. God finds it less worthwhile to eliminate cultural artifacts than to humble them. Humans can try all they want to make things to glorify themselves. God will only take them and turn them to his glory. Christ's redeeming work was done to restore nature, culture, and human beings. Now that's good news. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. But take note, God does not welcome everyone and everything just as they are into the city. This is vastly different than postmodern utopia where everyone is welcome just because there is no judge or judgments that can be made. That's that's the point here. The Bible is not always just pro-culture. While all cultures reflect God in some way, all cultures must stand before God in judgment, and there may be a picture of that in our text as well. Now, Richard Mao points this out. In Isaiah 60, verse 11, the picture of the kings is that they're led in procession. And in Isaiah 14, verse 2, God promises that his people will one day take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppress them. Thus, Mao argues that part of the vision is the kings coming into the city to be held accountable for the way they've used power and to face judgment as rulers before the ruler of all. He says this, kings and queens will bow before the widows and orphans they've oppressed. White racist politicians will wither under the gaze of black children. And he suggests it will not go on forever, but will come as part of a closing off of history. I don't know if everybody agrees with that, but at the very least, you have to see that the kings here have been humbled as they come before God. Because notice, they bring their treasures into the city, they don't hoard them and use them as bargaining chips to get a good seat at the banquet table, at the marriage feast of the Lamb. The kings of the earth use their treasures in this life often to display their power. And don't we also? 
But those treasures here show that they're going to be used for a different purpose. The picture here is a picture of radical transformation. A couple applications as we close. Look, there is no one easy, one-size-fits-all approach to culture. You look at the Bible, there are places where we're called both to affirm and to protest the cultures we find ourselves in. And for most people, it's easier to do one than the other. But the fact that the kings bring their glory into the city and no impure thing is in the city means that both of these truths have to guide us in how we deal with culture. The second thing, God has not given up on his good creation. Even though we often use it to say something very different than what God intended it to say, God hasn't given up. And here's the good news. God gets the last word. The Bible says that he will restore his creation to its purpose and end its frustration when he brings his people the full consummation of what they were made for, glorious physical bodies in the perfected new heavens and new earth. Third, it's not just people who were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It was the whole of creation. And this calling to glorify God and enjoy him forever is not just a command It's a promise. What God made us for, he's committed to making a reality for us. So this vision in Revelation 21 both calls us to work towards this goal and it serves as a promise of what is coming. Because the Lord is committed to seeing his will fully realized one day and teaches us to work and pray hard to that end. We say it all the time, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, to pray this prayer with integrity means to offer ourselves, to offer yourself and our work as part of the answer to this prayer. We don't just pray this prayer hoping God will raise up somebody else to do it. To pray and to long for that means to offer yourself up as part of the answer. It's a surprising picture indeed here in Revelation 21. Surprising picture that must shape our hopes and our dreams even now. It's a surprising picture that reveals more about our God and the things he cares about and is committed to bringing to full consummation. And it's a surprising picture that should transform our prayers and how we labor here, working to push back the effects of the fall and working to bring out all the God-glorifying potential he has built into his creation. It's both overwhelming but incredibly inviting. And God promises that he will be with us even as we work in his name. And that's why he invites us to this this meal. See, this meal both reminds us of what he's done, but it also nourishes us along the way until he comes again. Let me pray together and then Paul is going to come and lead us to this glorious table. Lord, we do thank you for this surprising picture. We thank you for the way this picture can shape and mold us, shape our hopes and our dreams. Lord, thank you that you have set before us an incredibly beautiful, glorious picture. One that as we see it, it even makes us ache and long for you to make all things new. 
Lord, we come to you as people who live frustrated in so many ways that things are not the way they should be. But Lord, rather than just give up, thank you, Lord, that you are committed to making all things right. And until then, Lord, thank you that you meet us, that you're with us, that you feed us, even as you whet our appetite for the feast that is to come. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.